You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. There's a quote that I like, usually attributed to Wayne Gretzky, and I'm sure you've heard it. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And what that means, of course, is that if you never put yourself out there uh, where there's a chance to fail, you never have the opportunity to succeed. No risk, no reward. And, and I think that quote really captures the essence of George B. McClellan's performance in the Civil War. He didn't ultimately succeed because uh, he would not accept the risk of failure. Now, fortunately for us, there's a lot more to the story. When you look at the career arcs of Ulysses Grant and George McClellan and, and the effect the Civil War had upon them, they're virtually mirror opposites. Uh, Grant had been, had been forced to resign from the Army over drinking problems. He failed in business several times. And just prior to the war, he was in a position where he had to rely on family just to have a job. Uh, by the end of the war, though, he was one of the most popular and powerful men in the country. And he was twice elected president of the United States. McClellan, on the other hand, seemed destined for greatness. He was a brilliant student, uh, second in his class at West Point, and then he became one of the most promising young officers in the pre-war army, and after resigning, was a highly successful business executive. Uh, when the war started, he rocketed to the top and was soon in overall command of all Union forces. He, he had essentially known nothing but success throughout his entire life to that point. And he was poised to assume the position, uh, which would later be claimed by Grant, as the Union's military hero of the war. But he just couldn't seem to grab a hold of it. He wouldn't take the shot, uh, even when it seemed to be wide open. And I, I think the reason for that is, like many immensely talented people, McClellan was cursed with a fundamental fear of failure. He, he was so used to succeeding and winning uh, that he was afraid to put himself in a position where he might fail or look bad. It wasn't such a big deal when the stakes were relatively low while he was a student or, or a junior officer or an executive, but when the stakes were at their absolute highest, when the future of the country was resting on his shoulders, he was paralyzed into inaction by his fear of failure. Compare McClellan's gun-shy performance to some of the successful commanders we've looked at. Now, Lee certainly wasn't afraid to take risks, even to a fault, but he had the, the deep-seated confidence of an aristocrat, and he was also uh, playing with house money. I mean, he was the underdog, so if he fails, well, that's what everyone expected. But if he succeeds, more the glory. Jackson, well, Jackson wasn't afraid to fail because he was absolutely convinced that whatever happened was God's will anyway. And of course, there's Grant. Uh, no one really expected much of Grant going into the war, 
and, and those that did expected him to fail. But because he had seen plenty of failure before the war, he wasn't afraid of it. Grant wasn't afraid to take the shot because he knew as well as anyone what it's like to miss. It's no big deal. You just get up and you give it another go. But with McClellan, you get the impression that there was always a nagging thought in the back of his head. What if I lose? What if I fail? Now, I'm not here to bash on George McClellan. Far from it, actually. I think that in a lot of ways, he's been treated unfairly by historians. They only focus on his reluctance to commit the army to battle and ignore some pretty huge contributions that he made to the Union war effort. Uh, McClellan uh, biography I read was remarkable in, in that I've never read a bio where the writer so obviously dislikes his subject uh, more than this writer dislikes McClellan. Uh, even to this day, you still hear people suggest that McClellan was a traitor who intentionally sabotaged the Union war effort and secretly wanted the South to win. Now, that charge is, uh, frankly, it's absurd and absolutely not supported by the historical evidence, but you still hear people say it. So in our portrait of McClellan, uh, we'll give credit where credit is due, but also we're going to point out the several costly mistakes McClellan made. Uh, first and foremost, he deserves recognition for building the Army of the Potomac into the first-rate 19th century army that it became. Uh, he was a very hard worker and an immensely talented administrator and an effective trainer of men. Now, you have to remember that many, or even most, uh, of the soldiers who were willing to accept the brutal casualty counts that Grant required to end the war were trained by McClellan. You don't just pull a few thousand volunteers off the street and tell them to fix bayonets and charge straight into rebel artillery batteries and breastworks. And after the Battle of Manassas, he convinced demoralized soldiers, and really a demoralized public, uh, that Yankees could fight just as well as rebels. And the regular soldiers absolutely adored him. One Union soldier put it like this, quote, The effect of this man's presence upon the Army of the Potomac, in sunshine or in rain, in darkness or in daylight, in victory or in defeat, was electrical, and too wonderful to make it worthwhile attempting to give a reason for it. Of course, uh, I'm not unique in noticing that McClellan had some virtues to go along with his faults. None other than U.S. Grant himself, in an interview after the war, pointed out the incredibly difficult position McClellan was placed in. In modern terms, you might say that he was set up for failure. Now, Grant, who I think can provide more insight into McClellan's position than any modern commenter, uh, had this to say about the former general-in-chief, and, and I think Grant really nails it with this assessment. Quote, McClellan is to me one of the mysteries of the war. As a young man, he was always a mystery. He had the way of inspiring you with the idea of immense capacity, if he would only have a chance. Then he is a man of unusual accomplishments, a student, and a well-read man. I have never studied his campaigns enough to make up my mind as to his military skill, but all my impressions are in his favor. I have entire confidence in McClellan's loyalty and patriotism, but the test which was applied to him would be terrible to any man, being made a major general at the beginning of the war. It has always seemed to me that the critics of McClellan do not consider this vast and cruel responsibility. The war, a new thing to all of us, the army knew, everything to do from the outset with a restless people in Congress. McClellan was a young man when this devolved upon him, and if he did not succeed, it was because the conditions of success were so trying. If McClellan had gone into the war as Sherman, Thomas, or Meade, had fought his way along and up, I have no reason to suppose that he would not have won as high a distinction as any of us. Hello and welcome to Portraits of Blue and Gray. 
This is the first installment in our series on George McClellan. You'll find that this episode is a little shorter than most of our recent shows, and that's by design. Uh, what I'm hoping to do is start having slightly shorter episodes in the one-hour area, but try to get them out more frequently. Uh, we're still early in the life of the show, so I'm not 100% committed to this formula. But I'm going to try it out and see how it works. Uh, if any listeners have a preference one way or the other, uh, or would like to reach us for any other reason, send me an email at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com. I love receiving listener emails, so don't be shy. Uh, another item I wanted to hit on before we get going is that Portraits of Blue and Gray has been invited to join the Recorded History Podcast Network, which, uh, hopefully, uh, will be a really cool opportunity to grow the show's uh, audience. Um, there are quite a few good podcasts on that network, so if you're ever looking for a history-related podcast to listen to, uh, I invite you to check out the, the network at recordedhistory.net. And finally, um, part of the reason it took me so long to get this show out is that I've been working on a guest episode for the Twilight Histories podcast. Um, if you're not familiar with Twilight Histories, it's an alternate history podcast with, with some cool sci-fi elements incorporated into it. The guest episode is Civil War related, and I think it turned out pretty good. So if you're into alternate history type storytelling, or you're interested in hearing my fiction writing, I encourage you to check out the Twilight Histories guest episode, American Dictator which should be released on the Twilight History's iTunes feed within the next couple weeks. As always, thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. George Brinton McClellan was born on December 3rd, 1826, into a wealth of advantages. His father was a Yale graduate and a well-known, socially connected doctor in Philadelphia, and the McClellan family was prominent in that city. As the name suggests, he was of Scottish ancestry, but the family had been in America since before the Revolution. His great-grandfather rose to the rank of Brigadier General in the Connecticut Militia during the Revolutionary War, but otherwise, there wasn't much in the way of military service in McClellan's family tree. His mother, Elizabeth Steinmetz Brinton, uh, was also from an upper-crust Philadelphia family. She was highly educated, especially compared to the standards for women in that time, and she did everything in her power to ensure that George, the third of her five children, got the absolute best education he could get. He showed academic promise from a young age. Uh, he attended private schools in and around Philadelphia and had private tutors, including one he later described as, quote, a one-eyed German Jew by the name of Schiffer, a magnificent classical scholar and an excellent teacher. Under Schiffer's tutelage, uh, George studied classics and learned to speak both French and Latin fluently. He, he was a remarkably adept student to the point that he gained admission to the University of Pennsylvania at age 13. After initially planning to study law, he decided on a military career after a few years at UPenn. Uh, once young George decided on the military, his father, uh, who was politically connected in general and, and a close friend of Massachusetts Senator Daniel Webster, wrote to the Secretary of War on his son's behalf, requesting admission to West Point. The elder McClellan wrote of his son, quote, The youth has nearly completed his classical education at the university, 
and desires to go through the West Point School for the serious purpose of devoting his life to the service of the Army of the United States, unquote. At that time, the minimum age for admission to West Point was 16. George McClellan, though, was only 15. Even so, based upon the exceptional talent and promise that he showed uh, during the admissions process, he was granted a waiver and became the youngest student at the school in June 1842. He went through a rough bout of homesickness at first, but by the end of the summer, he had settled in and was very much enjoying the military school lifestyle. The first-year curriculum was heavy on math and French, and so it was an absolute breeze for the well-educated McClellan. While classmate Thomas Jackson was spending endless hours uh, cramming just to keep his head above water, McClellan barely studied at all, and he still finished the first year ranked third in the class overall, and first in math. A full one-third of the class flunked to the first-year exams and was dismissed from the school, but McClellan didn't even have to work hard. Everything came easy. Socially, McClellan uh, was popular in general, but uh, he connected more with his classmates from the South um, than with fellow Northerners. His closest friend at West Point was his roommate, the future Confederate General A.P. Hill, uh, son of a prominent Virginia family. McClellan wrote to his brother, quote, Somehow or other I take to the Southerners. Almost all my associates, indeed all of them, are Southerners. I am sorry to say that the manners, feelings, and opinions of the Southerners are far, far preferable to those of the majority of Northerners at this place, unquote. He related to the aristocratic nature of the Southern elites more than the more bourgeois Northerners. And the friendships with Southerners McClellan formed um, at West Point were a big factor in the accusations of Southern sympathies uh, that would later be aimed at him. He continued coasting through his second and third years with minimal effort required, when he occasionally uh, received relatively low marks, and I stress relatively, um, such as in drawing, in, in which he finished 18th, he had a tendency to, to view the grades as a reflection of unfairness by the professors rather than any shortcomings of his own. Um, like many gifted youths then and now, McClellan had a hard time accepting criticism, however constructive, and he instinctively became defensive whenever his work was questioned. During his final year, he studied military engineering and tactics under Professor Dennis Hart Mahan, whose emphasis on French military theory had a large influence on McClellan's military philosophy. In fact, it's worth pointing out that the reason West Point required first-year students to study French was so that they would be able to read what was viewed as the cutting edge of military theory in the original language. Now, even as the youngest in the class, McClellan was very popular with his classmates and well-liked by both students and faculty. He was almost universally described as cheerful, generous, charming, and, and just a good guy all around. Uh, if West Point voted on most likely to succeed in 1846, um, McClellan would have won, won the vote walking away. Professor Mahan, uh, who spent more than 40 years teaching at West Point, identified McClellan as an ideal candidate for future high command. And fellow cadet William Gardner remembered, quote, we predicted military fame for him, unquote. When graduation came in June 1846, McClellan ranked second in his class out of 58, behind a cadet named Charles Stewart, who would later serve as captain of engineers in the Army of the Potomac. Uh, of course, graduating second from West Point is an impressive accomplishment. Robert E. Lee graduated second in his class, too. But McClellan was disappointed. He wanted to be first. He wrote, quote, 
I must confess that I have malice enough to want to show them that if I did not graduate head of my class, I can nevertheless do something, unquote. Think about what he's saying here. Um, I may have only graduated second, but I'll prove to them that I can still be somebody. Uh, so you have a school with a curriculum uh, that's considered one of, if not the most difficult in the country. And McClellan breezes through without hardly any exertion whatsoever. And then he's disappointed that he ranks second in his class instead of first. So you really start to see where uh, having things just come too easily early in his life could end up causing him to have some trouble uh, handling adversity later on down the line. I mean, if graduating second from West Point is your idea of failure, well, number one, you're obviously a perfectionist. And two, you don't have a very clear definition of what failure really is. Now, at graduation, McClellan was given the honor of presenting the valedictory address to the Dialectic Society, uh, which was an invitation-only club for West Pointers who demonstrated especially high intellectual prowess. His speech focused on the divisions that were taking hold throughout the country in the 1840s, you know, kind of like right now. And considering it was given 15 years or so before the Civil War, it was impressively prescient. In discussing rising sectionalism, he advised that, quote, If party or sectional spirit should rise so high as to bring upon us the horror of a civil war, let the army, united as one man, throw its weight into the scale, and the result cannot be doubtful. Let us hope that the army will ever incline to the conservative party, to that one whose motto shall be the union, one and individual. A house divided within itself must surely fall, unquote. So McClellan, uh, he viewed himself as a centrist early in his life, but became increasingly conservative throughout, uh, viewed the army as a unifying force that would keep the country together if partisanship got out of hand. Uh, of course, that ended up being true, um, as Obi-Wan Kenobi would say, from a certain point of view. So after graduation, the initial plan was to fulfill his four-year service commitment and then practice law. Uh, the small peacetime army, after all, was widely viewed as a dead end, with little opportunity for advancement, uh, even for the most capable officers. Uh, Lee also considered resigning at one point uh, out of frustration with the stagnation. But, of course, the Mexican War changed all that. And McClellan, like most of his classmates, got caught up in the excitement. He wrote to his sister, Hip hip hurrah, war at last, sure enough, ain't it glorious? Well, it appears that our wishes have at last been gratified, and we shall soon have the intense satisfaction of fighting the crowd, mosquitoes, and Mexicans, etc. You have no idea in what a state of excitement we have been here, unquote. As a side note, McClellan was absolutely not unusual in his enthusiasm for war in general. And that attitude was not uniquely American. Pretty much up until World War I, uh, war was viewed much more enthusiastically and romantically throughout much of the world. So McClellan's first commission was as a second lieutenant in a new unit called the Company of Engineer Soldiers. That company was designed to be an elite group with uh, fairly high qualification standards. You had to be American-born, single, physically fit, and at the very least, know a mechanical trait. He spent the first two months training new recruits, and then in late September, the company set sail for Mexico, arriving in mid-October. The campaign didn't quite begin the way he had hoped. Um, within his first few days in country, he had contracted dysentery and then malaria. So he spent the better part of the first month in the hospital. 
And uh, the malaria would continue to flare up on him throughout the rest of his life, including at inopportune times during the Civil War. After recovering, he was transferred to serve with the topographical engineers under Winfield Scott. Uh, serving under the legendary Scott was a great opportunity, though McClellan didn't get to, to work with him as closely as Lee did. Uh, in March, he participated in Scott's amphibious landing at Veracruz, which in many ways inspired McClellan's Peninsula Campaign in 1862. Um, after Scott put the Veracruz fortress under siege, McClellan was assigned to construct mortar batteries, reporting to R.E. Lee during the task. It was at Veracruz that McClellan came under fire for the first time. A after the March 26th surrender at Veracruz, McClellan next saw action at Cerro Gordo, where Scott was met with uh, resistance from Santa Ana and 12,000 Mexican soldiers uh, while on the road to Mexico City. McClellan was assigned to a contingent, mostly consisting of volunteers, charged with fainting to the Mexican left as a distraction from the flank attack Scott uh, had ordered on the right. Um, McClellan didn't have a very high opinion of the volunteers. He wrote, quote, the idea of being killed by or among a parcel of volunteers was anything but pleasant, unquote. And his correspondence includes several other negative references to volunteers. But in all fairness, it wasn't uncommon for regulars to look down on the volunteers. In American military history, you can trace that opinion all the way back to George Washington, uh, who was known not to be overly impressed with the local militias. Now, the flanking movement, which should have been fairly simple, turned into a big, confused mess. And that was in part because uh, of the unseasoned volunteers, but more so because Gideon Pillow, who was a, a political appointee general with little to no military experience, uh, was in command. Instead of a flanking march, Pillow led the men on a frontal assault directly into the Mexican center. And predictably, uh, they got smacked around a bit. But even so, the primary assault on the right was a success and resulted in a rout. The incident with Pillow would lead to a recurrent theme in McClellan's military career. He had a, a disdain for political appointee officers, even more so than the volunteer infantry. Uh, Pillow in particular was an imbecile, uh, according to Mack. Uh, after the Mexican War, uh, Mack would write to one of his political connections, quote, In the name of God, sir, does the history of the world present such another instance as that of our government, which, having at its disposal men trained to be soldiers from their boyhood, who were educated expressly for the army in probably the best military academy in the world, passes over these men and goes behind the curtain into county courthouses and low village bar rooms to select her generals, her colonels, and all the officers of her new regiments, unquote. Maybe a little histrionic, but uh, you know, he was thinking about Pillow when he wrote that. And, and I think it's safe to say that um, he's correct in pointing out that you can expect trained officers to outperform inexperienced appointees. Now, of course, if you remember our series on U.S. Grant, um, Grant served with Pillow in Mexico also and held a similarly low opinion. So after the Cerro Gordo victory, Scott was delayed for a few months waiting on reinforcements because the enlistments of the three-month volunteers had run out and a good portion of them chose not to re-enlist. And it was during that time that George McClellan received devastating news. His father, also named George, uh, had died at only 50 years old. And Mac, and I'm, I'm going to refer to him as Mac from here on out, uh, because that's what um, most of his friends in the army called him, and, and it's shorter. Um, Mac was devastated. He had a very close, loving relationship with his father, who he described as, quote, as noble a being as ever graced the earth. 
A friend and future opponent, G.W. Smith, remembered of the time, quote, for several days he would see no one and was inconsolable, unquote. Uh, along with the emotional hit, there was also a financial one. George McClellan Sr. had been a successful doctor and a multi-talented professional, but he had also been very bad with money, and he left his widow with more debts than assets. So along with his brother John, Mac chose to voluntarily assume his father's debts so as to relieve his mother of the burden. And between the two, they had everything paid off within a few years, which uh, I think speaks very highly of the integrity of both McClellan brothers. The fighting in Mexico started up again on August 19th, and we're talking about 1847, in case I forgot to mention that, um, at Contreras. And this is probably the hardest fighting Mac saw in Mexico. He had two horses shot out from underneath him during the battle. And there was also a point where, um, after the deaths of a couple officers, he took over the operation of two howitzers. At Contreras, Mac also got a whiff of grape shot from the uh, less desirable end. But fortunately, his sword deflected the shot, and so what could have been a serious injury ended up just being some heavy bruising. Um, the strong showing at Contreras earned him accolades from his commanding officer, uh, Brigadier Percifer Smith, who wrote of Mac, quote, Nothing seemed too bold to be undertaken or too difficult to be executed. And for gallant and meritorious conduct, he was breveted to first lieutenant. Uh, he would be breveted again after Chapultepec, where he again assisted Lee in setting up artillery and got into some close quarters fighting at the San Cosme Gate. Of course, after Chapultepec, Mexico City fell, and the war basically came to an end. Uh, Mac was invigorated by the Army's battlefield success. He wrote, quote, I feel so glad and proud that I have got safely through the battles in this war, that it will take a heavy, heavy shock to make me despond, unquote. Uh, the intensity of the action seems to have helped him to get over his uh, grief from his father's death. And he seemed to enjoy uh, not just the battles, but being on campaign itself. Uh, notwithstanding the illnesses early on, McClellan wrote of his time in Mexico, quote, I could live such a life for years and years without becoming tired of it, unquote. So overall, he had performed well in Mexico and consistently demonstrated bravery under fire. He wasn't able to serve as closely under Winfield Scott as he would have liked, but he was certainly close enough to have been influenced by him, and later described Scott as the general under whom I first learned the art of war. Uh, of course, Scott uh, had this kind of impact on numerous officers um, who would become prominent later on. Uh, Shelby Foote writes of Scott, quote, To list the men who received their baptism of fire under his direction was practically to call the role of army commanders and generals-in-chief, both north and south, in the war that was building toward a climax at the time of his retirement, unquote. McClellan biographer Stephen Sears concludes that where you see Scott's influence most prominently in Mack's later performance is in his preference for flanking maneuvers and siege warfare over direct assaults, and in his emphasis on meticulous preparation before going on the offensive. Now, Scott would be relieved of command by President Polk in favor of Zachary Taylor, which is generally acknowledged as a political maneuver um, by Polk aimed at dampening a potential Winfield Scott run for president. In what almost seems like foreshadowing, Mack wrote of Scott's removal from direct command, quote, The noble old fellow must have felt that even if the administration has relieved him from commanding, they could not weaken the hold he has upon the respect and affection of every man in the army, unquote. Now, the position he was sympathizing with Scott for being in 
is pretty similar to the position that Mac was going to find himself in some 15 years later. Um, after the war, Mac had the opportunity to stay in Mexico City in a quartermaster's role for a little more than half a year. And it wasn't a bad gig. Um, not only did he earn invaluable experience in supply management and become part of the famous Aztec club, but he also got to live in a palace and see all the local historical and cultural sites. And, and the icing on the cake, I suppose, is that he had a romantic relationship with a beautiful local girl by the name of Nachita. Um, they both professed their love, but even so, when the time came for young Captain McClellan to return to Los Estados Unidos, the relationship came to an end. Upon his return home to Philadelphia, he was rewarded with a banquet in his honor thrown by the city's upper-class socialites, who presented him with a ceremonial sword. Now, obviously, that's a nice gesture, but Mac thought it was overblown and that it gave him too much credit. He wrote, quote, They will humbug me into the belief that I am somebody. It actually causes a kind of feeling of shame to rise in me, this being rewarded for doing subaltern's duty in such a small business. In his mind, it was more praise than he deserved. It was a participation trophy awarded more due to his social rank than his accomplishments on the battlefield. So, you know, that shows a, a respectable level of humility for a young man. Um, after the war, McClellan, uh, reassuming his position as a military scholar, presented a paper on lessons that the U.S. government should learn from the Mexican War. And predictably, his focus was on volunteers and political officers. Noting the difficulty of placing volunteers in the field uh, after only brief training, he wrote, quote, It is barely possible to make a decent soldier, even of infantry, in five years, much less of engineers, artillery, and dragoons, unquote. And of the political appointees, he suggested, quote, If citizens must be appointed, they should in every case go in below those already in service, that is to say, as second lieutenants, not as generals, unquote. Uh, his recommendation to address these problems was to man peacetime regiments at half size so that volunteers could be put in action alongside experienced soldiers if a quick expansion became necessary. And the officer corps uh, should stay fully staffed at all times. Uh, we'll get into this later, but one of Mac's successes in the Civil War is, is the way he allocated volunteers and appointees among regulars and spread out the politicians to try to keep them from doing too much damage. Now, he had to fight for it, but it very much improved the Army of the Potomac's officer corps. But returning now to June of 1848, uh, Mack received uh, orders to report to West Point, where he was assigned as an engineering instructor until 1851. Future adversary uh, Robert E. Lee was appointed as superintendent in 1852, so they missed each other just by one year. After receiving the orders, he lamented to his mother, quote, I suppose I must make up my mind to pass the rest of my life in a very tame and humdrum manner, unquote. He had resigned himself to being, quote, booked for an infernally monotonous life for the remainder of his natural existence, unquote. Now, keep in mind, he was only 21 years old at that point. That's an age where most people today are finishing school or just starting their careers. Um, McClellan had already gone through two of the best schools of higher education in the country, and seen real combat action, and was now being assigned to instruct at a premier military academy. At West Point, Mac wasn't actually tasked with teaching cadets, though. His job was, uh, once again, training the company of engineer soldiers. And during that time, he demonstrated 
two of his idiosyncrasies that would be magnified during the Civil War. Uh, first, he tended to, to make a big deal about things that most people would see as trivia, like uh, the location for a storage shed, for example. And he would write out excessively long memoranda explaining his positions. And probably more notably, uh, this is when you start seeing the presumptuousness start to surface. His exceptional talent had uh, led to a lot of opportunities and doors opening for him. And you start to get the feeling that uh, around this time, Max starts thinking that that's the way it should be. He deserves special consideration because of the, the level of talent he brings to the table. So he wrote up a proposal for an army engineering school. N not a bad idea in and of itself. But the proposal gave the impression that the writer, who suggested that he would be an ideal candidate to head the school, was, was better acquainted with the subject matter than his boss, the Army's chief engineer, and the Secretary of War, Charles Conrad, who was the, the memo's target audience. Conrad concluded of the proposal, quote, Its tone is very objectionable. The writer assumes to speak on the important subject it refers to more authoritatively than his rank and experience entitle him to, unquote. Now, you can almost hear Lincoln saying the same thing in response to McClellan's later unsolicited suggestions on uh, wartime politics. In June of 1851, Mack was happy to receive a transfer away from West Point uh, when he was assigned to supervise the construction of Fort Delaware in eastern Pennsylvania. At the time, that part of Pennsylvania had a large German-speaking population, known as Pennsylvania Dutch. Mack wanted to communicate with the locals in their, their first tongue, and so he decided to learn German, uh, once again demonstrating his, his academic prowess and his exceptional knack for languages. Uh, he became fluent within only a few months. Uh, then in December of that year, he was called to Washington and tasked with drafting a manual on the proper use of the bayonet for publication by the Army. Uh, this job was uh, a piece of cake for McClellan, since all he really had to do was translate the manual that was in use in France from the original French. And, of course, Mack was an ace with French. And, and France was considered to be at the forefront in military thinking during most of the 1800s, though I believe that mantle would be uh, temporarily transferred to Prussia later in the century, uh, at least in part due to the results of a, a certain war that I, I hope to discuss in a future episode, at least in part. But in March of 1852, Mack received another desired transfer, this time from the Engineering Corps into the Cavalry when he was assigned to join an expedition up the Red River. The expedition was a good experience. It got him back out into the field, and, and he really dove into his assigned work uh, of recording geological and meteorological samples. The results were not all that important, though, but the expedition changed his life nonetheless because it, it was led by Major Randolph Marcy, an officer Mack described as, quote, one of the finest men I ever met with, and I never saw one better fitted to conduct such an expedition. Unquote. Uh, Marcy would later serve as Mac's chief of staff and, more importantly, become his father-in-law. The, the two would have a close, friendly relationship, both professionally and personally, for the remainder of their lives. An interesting side note to the adventure into the frontier is, is that upon their return, the group found out that rumors had spread throughout the country that the entire team, 75 men strong, had been massacred by Comanche Indians. Indeed, the supposed massacre had made national news and was already being used by what Mack described as, quote, a set of scoundrels who seek to keep up agitation on the frontier in order to get employment from the government in one way or other, unquote. 
without further commentary, I will once again posit that there is nothing new about fake news. Uh, the rest of 1852 was spent on surveying and uh, frontier post inspections in Texas, following which he made his way to New Orleans to spend some time with an old uh, army friend by the name of P.G.T. Beauregard. Max said of his time in New Orleans with uh, Beauregard that he, quote, found it the most pleasant possible way of living for a bachelor, unquote. And then in April of 1853, he received word from Beauregard that he had been asked to participate in a surveying mission ordered by Secretary of War Jefferson Davis for the planned transcontinental railroad from Minnesota to Washington state. Now, this was a great opportunity, which Beauregard acknowledged when he wrote, quote, I was on the point of answering yes for you. I will take the liberty to advise you to accept his offer, unquote. Uh, Mac recognized a good opportunity when he saw one, and he readily accepted, as Beauregard recommended. His job was to lead an expedition exploring the Cascade Mountains, looking for workable passes. For political and economic reasons, there was a disagreement over which route the railroad should take. Basically, all the politicians wanted the route to go through their states. So Congress decided to have the army, as a supposedly neutral party, determine which route would work best. So after a six-week trip from New York through Panama to San Francisco, Mack eventually made his way to Fort Vancouver in Washington State. At that fort, he met for the first time fellow West Pointer Ulysses Grant, uh, who was serving as the fort's quartermaster. Uh, unfortunately, his time at Fort Vancouver was when Grant was earning his reputation as a hard drinker, a reputation that he never quite lived down. So somewhat understandably, uh, this made a bad impression on McClellan, uh, which he, he never seemed to get over, despite Grant's later stellar record. As he led his 60-man team into the wilderness on July 18, 1853, Mack wrote to his mother of his satisfaction in his current position, quote, I have a good saddle, a fine command, a new country, hard work, and plenty of responsibility on my shoulders. What more could one ask? Unquote. He enjoyed the several-month-long exploration, but ultimately, it led to some friction between him and Isaac Stevens, the, the governor of the Washington Territory who had recruited him to uh, lead the expedition. And the reason for that was that McClellan, upon his return, recommended against using the route through Washington. He concluded that there were uh, only two possible passes in the area and that high winter snowfall accumulations would make either impractical. Uh, this was obviously not the conclusion that Stevens was looking for. And so he sent his own man up into the mountains to try to prove McClellan wrong. And predictably, Stevens's man concluded that the route through Washington was indeed the optimal route for the railroad. So in the end, the surveys didn't accomplish their objective. Each expedition, and I believe there were four altogether, ended up recommending the surveyed area for the railroad. And so they were right back where they started, arguing over which route was best. McClellan, though, took particular offense to Stevens second-guessing him. And you see here a common theme with Mack. He, he doesn't like civilian interference with military matters. Uh, he wrote at the time, quote, I have done my last service under civilians and politicians. I will not consent to serve any longer under Governor Stevens unless he promises in no way to interfere, unquote. Now, despite Stevens' uh, dissatisfaction with the survey, uh, the Army was satisfied, and upon his return, Mack found that he had been promoted to first lieutenant. And Secretary of War Davis personally selected him for assignments scoping out potential naval ports in Santo Domingo, which is uh, now Haiti and the Dominican Republic, 
and conducting additional fact-finding expeditions for the Transcontinental Railroad. The, the latter assignment would lead back to uh, become an expert on railroad matters, which would come in very useful throughout his life. 1854 would prove to be a very significant year in Mac's personal life because that was the year he met his, his future wife, Ellen Marcy, the 18-year-old daughter of Major Randolph Marcy, who he had served under during the Red River trip. For Mac, it was truly love at first sight. He wrote to his mother, quote, I have not seen a very great deal of the little lady. Still, that little has been sufficient to make me determined to win her if I can, unquote. He asked her father for permission to, to court Ellen, which he happily granted. And in June, he proposed, and she flatly rejected him. He was devastated, lamenting that he had done, quote, a very foolish thing in the way of pushing too far and too quickly, unquote. Now, Ellen Marcy had dozens of suitors. She was considered extraordinarily charming and very beautiful. Uh, so she had quite a few options. And uh, the idea of changing her name to Ellen McClellan was probably not all that attractive. Now, really, though, that wasn't the problem. The problem was that Ellen thought that she had already made her pick. Uh, she was in love with A.P. Hill, George McClellan's former roommate. Small world, right? Her parents, though, were firmly against her marrying Hill, seeing him as, as not offering nearly the stable future that McClellan promised. Major Marcy and Mrs. Marcy both advocated vigorously for Mac. The Major wrote to Mrs. Marcy, quote, He is talented, good-looking, agreeable, and in every respect preferable to another officer that I know of, and I cannot conceive how she can think otherwise, unquote. Even more, Mac was one of the most brilliant men of his rank. Uh, Mrs. Marcy's opinion was just as high. She wrote to Ellen uh, after the declined proposal, quote, How very kind he is. Oh, Nell, such a treasure as you have lost forever. You can't realize now, but the time is coming sooner or later, just as sure as you live, when you will regret, if ever a woman did, mark my words. Unquote. Mrs. Marcy was so dead set against A.P. Hill that she may have spread rumors that he had contracted a venereal disease. Uh, of course, in her defense, it appears that those uh, rumors may well have been true. To Mac's credit, however, he always defended his friend and former roommate, Hill. We'll leave the romance angle for the, of the story for now, but keep in mind that throughout the next year or so, Major and Mrs. Marcy will be working on Ellen, trying to convince her that George McClellan and not Ambrose Powell Hill is the better match. Uh, Secretary of War Jefferson Davis shared Major Marcy's high opinion of Lieutenant McClellan. And so in 1855, when Congress authorized two new infantry regiments and two new cavalry regiments to oversee the land recently won from Mexico, Mack received a much sought after appointment in the new 1st Cavalry, and with it a promotion to captain. Davis's support was instrumental in McClellan's receiving the coveted position. But before long, uh, Jefferson Davis decided he had another important job for the talented young Captain McClellan. The Crimean War was going on in Europe, and Davis wanted to send an observation team across the Atlantic to see what insights could be gleaned from the war, uh, which involved some of the, the most advanced militaries in the world, the French, British, Russian, and Ottomans. Mack's companions were two majors who had, had both graduated from West Point first in their respective classes. Former West Point Superintendent Richard Delafield led the team and was tasked with studying fortifications. And Major Alfred Mordecai was to learn about European artillery practices. McClellan's job was to prepare a more general report on logistics and engineering. 
He was selected over a highly respected engineering officer who had lobbied for the position, Robert E. Lee. Now, the assignment allowed Mack to meet Tsar Alexander II and Napoleon III, uh, the latter of whom he described as a, quote, stolid, stupid-looking man, not showing the remotest sign in his face of the ability he undoubtedly possesses. Nothing of the royal in his bearing. So, uh, that's not very nice. The team spent most of the visit with the British and French, though they also observed Prussian and Russian bases that were away from the fighting and toured several European capitals. Mack took close notes about the British and French siege techniques in particular, uh, which he would later attempt to employ on Richmond. And during the year-long expedition, he regularly corresponded with Ellen Marcy's mother, who he knew to be his greatest ally in his quest to win the heart of young Ellen. Upon his return, after a year away, uh, Mack stayed at home in Philadelphia while he prepared his report. Uh, part of the reason he had received the assignment in the first place was his talent for languages. So he had little difficulty parsing through the, the treasure trove of European military manuals and books he had amassed during the trip. He already knew German and French, and during the trip, he decided to learn Russian also. Impressively, within a few months of setting the goal, he was able to translate a Russian cavalry manual into English. Uh, Mack's translation, uh, with some of his own supplementation, would soon be adopted as the official cavalry manual of the U.S. Army, as was his translation of a French bayonet manual. And the McClellan saddle, which he designed based upon modifications of the, the cavalry saddles that he observed in Europe, was also soon standard issue in the U.S. So the Crimean expedition was fruitful, and it put Mack in the position of being one of, if not the, most academically knowledgeable officers in the Army. And he was pretty much universally highly thought of and, and seen as, as an up-and-comer with potential for high command. And uh, that reminds me of something, that when I was um, researching McClellan, it just didn't seem to make sense. Historians frequently present him as, as, as an arrogant, pompous jerk. And, and I think that's largely based on his, his correspondence with Ellen, which we'll discuss soon. But when you look at the people he served with, and the men who served under him, and just people who knew him outside of the army, the majority opinion is, is unquestionably that he was a great guy. Uh, the soldiers in the Army of the Potomac absolutely loved him. Most of his fellow officers respected and liked him. So if everyone who knew him seemed to, to like him so much, why is the consensus among historians that he was a, a pompous snob? Okay, I got a little off track there, but where I was originally headed was in 1856, McClellan was, was one of the most promising young officers in the Army. At only 30 years old, he had already established himself as a top-flight engineer, a brave soldier in battle, and an impressive academic. Uh, he was poised to be one of the, the few peacetime soldiers who made it all the way up to general. But for some reason, soon after his return from Crimea, he abruptly resigned from the Army. It's not exactly clear why he left. One theory I read was that he had a dispute with Jefferson Davis over a uh, recommendation for reorganization of the cavalry that Mack had made, and he resigned in protest. Uh, biographer Stephen Sears thinks it was because the 1st Cavalry was slated for a mission to Bleeding Kansas, and Mack didn't want to get involved in that, and, and didn't want to serve under Colonel Edwin Sumner. Sumner, who would, would later serve under Mack, had a reputation for being difficult to work under. The closest thing to an explanation we get from McClellan himself is his letter to Randolph Marcy that reads, quote, I fancy you were rather surprised at my sudden departure from my old paths. I was rather so myself. 
It was a sudden thing, done almost upon the spur of the moment, and under the influence of a combination of circumstances, which I regarded as making it obligatory upon me to take the course I have done." Unquote. Now, there was a wealth of opportunities ready for Mack after he became a civilian. He was hired by the Illinois Central Railroad as chief engineer and was vice president within a year. Uh, during his time with the Illinois Central, he met an attorney representing the railroad named Abraham Lincoln, became acquainted with Alan Pinkerton, a detective hired to investigate train robberies, and hired fellow West Pointer Ambrose Burnside as a cashier, and even let Burnside live with him briefly. Burnside had gone bankrupt as a result of a failed business venture centered around development of a, a breech-loading rifle. Burnside obviously appreciated the kindness and, and was a loyal friend to and steadfast supporter of uh, McClellan for the rest of their lives, uh, despite a few professional differences that they would later encounter. Mack had a similarly high opinion of Burnside, too. Uh, he, he once wrote that, quote, That honest, true, brave old Burnside is worth a legion of those paltry butterflies that flutter around ballrooms, unquote. A career as a railroad executive would provide Mack with important insights into logistics and some good leadership experience. But he was bored. He seriously considered uh, work as a mercenary in the Latin American filibustering expeditions uh, that were going on at the time. And that obviously wasn't about the money. I mean, his railroad pay was, was making him wealthy. Now, Mack was uh, of the opinion that, that certain Latin American countries might make excellent candidates for Manifest Destiny-style expansion. But funding for the trips dried up with the Panic of 1857. Uh, it's funny, though, reading his letters to old Army buddies like Joseph Johnston and G.W. Smith while they were considering filibustering, uh, they sound like a bunch of married guys in their 30s talking about getting the band back together. So when the trip fell through, Johnston consoled Mac, quote, You'll have to consent yourself to becoming a rich civilian instead of a member of a small but select party of maintainers of human liberty, unquote. So you don't get to be a rock star, but at least you can make a bunch of money in the business world. But the Panic of 1857 also um, was hard on the railroad, and Mac found himself at odds with the New York money men that were looking to cut costs. He stuck his neck out for laborers, fighting against wage reductions, and even offering not to take uh, his salary until economic conditions improved. In resisting the cutbacks, Mac wrote, quote, I see such good reason for my course that I am willing to risk my reputation and position on the issue, unquote. This foreshadows that Mac would be willing to go to bat for the, the men in the Army of the Potomac a few years later. As we alluded to early, his railroad time also allowed him to become acquainted with Illinois attorney Abraham Lincoln. Mac, though, was a solid Democrat and an acquaintance of Stephen Douglas, who he firmly supported in the famous Senate race. He even had the opportunity to attend one of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, of which he concluded, quote, Douglas's speech was compact, logical, and powerful. Mr. Lincoln's disjointed, and rather a mass of anecdotes than of arguments. I did not think that there was any approach to equality in the oratorical powers of the two men, unquote. His opinion of Lincoln was not high. Honest Abe was, quote, not a man of very strong character, and as he was destitute of refinement, certainly in no sense a gentleman. He was easily wrought upon by the coarse associates whose style of conversation agrees so well with his own, unquote. Politically, McClellan was a fairly conservative Democrat, on the slavery question, he favored extending the Missouri Compromise to the Pacific, th thereby allowing further expansion of slavery. He wasn't personally a fan of slavery, and he never owned slaves, 
but he viewed that institution as being constitutionally sanctioned. When the regional divisions started getting hot and secession talk began, uh, Mack was firmly against it. In his mind, extremists on both sides were the problem. Uh, compromise was the key, but if secession comes, quote, we will meet the consequence unitedly. Let it be war or peace. But the general opinion is that it will be war, unquote. Throughout his time with the railroad, Mack continued corresponding with the Marcy family, including Ellen. In 1858, his persistence finally paid off when, when Ellen finally started writing back. She had succumbed to the pressure from her parents and broke things off with A.P. Hill, who Major Marcy said could only offer a life of exile, deprivation, and poverty. The problem with Hill was that Yes, he's charming and good-looking and has a, an aristocratic bearing to him, but he couldn't offer financial security, and that was a bigger deal back when women were rarely employed. So they began writing regularly, and in October of 1859, the Marcys visited Mac in Chicago on their way to Minnesota, and Mac renewed the proposal, which Ellen this time accepted. And so began what was a very loving, devoted, and successful marriage— uh, Mac thought that he had hit the jackpot. He found his soulmate. And Ellen was a very supportive and loving wife. Whenever they were apart, Mac would write to Ellen at least once a day, every day. And he would confide his unfiltered thoughts to her, uh, almost as if he was writing in a diary. His letters to Ellen uh, allow posterity a crystal clear window into Mac's innermost thoughts, something that, that you just don't get uh, with nearly any other major historical figure. And, and I think that might be part of the reason so many historians ha have taken the view of, of McClellan as an arrogant jerk. He would write to Ellen anything that he was thinking, including things that he would almost certainly never say aloud. Uh, she was almost like his therapist, and so we get to hear everything that he wanted to get off his chest, uh, almost to the point where you feel... Ashamed to be reading what was undoubtedly written in confidence. I mean, after all, would any of us want to be judged by historians according to, to what we say to our wives or husbands when we're venting? So um, the McClellans settled into a happy marriage uh, after their wedding um, in May of 1860. He was 33 and she was 25. Winfield Scott, D.H. Hill, and Joseph Johnston were all guests at the wedding. Sadly, uh, A.P. Hill couldn't make it. And you know that had to be awkward, too, because Hill and McClellan had been good friends and, and roommates at school, as we mentioned. And, and as far as I could tell, they never had any kind of real falling out. Mac always defended Hill, so you'd think that had the bride been anyone else, Hill would have been there. Probably best that he wasn't, though. I mean, I can, I can see uh, A.P. Hill wearing his, his lucky red battle shirt, creating some kind of scene like uh, in The Graduate to disrupt the McClellan wedding. But anyway, with family life looking good, McClellan continued to prosper in his professional life as well. He was hired as president of the Eastern Division of the Ohio and Mississippi Railroad in 1860 at an annual salary of $10,000, which was absolutely enormous in 1860 dollars, about 10 times more than what he would have been making in the Army. He and Ellen moved from Chicago to Cincinnati for the new position, but he wasn't happy with his career as an executive. He missed the Army. He wrote to a friend, quote, Railroading is all very well, but I like the old business better. Life is too short to waste in bickering about cross ties and contracts. I cannot learn to love it, unquote. Then in uh, April 1861, 
He had a reason to get back in the Army after the firing upon Fort Sumter. He had negotiated a clause in his lease um, for the home that he had rented in Cincinnati, uh, which allowed him to be released from the lease in the event that a war broke out. And that clause appeared to have been triggered. Prior to secession, Mack had sympathized with Southern complaints and denounced radical politics in the North. But secession was a bridge too far. There were rumors that he, he was offered a Confederate command, uh, but it's not exactly clear whether there was ever a formal offer on the table. Uh, he was definitely still in contact with old friends like Johnston and Smith, uh, who would soon be generals in the Confederate Army, right up until the war broke out. But I, I haven't seen anything to suggest that he ever seriously considered siding with the South or was ever uh, formally offered any kind of commission in the Confederate military. Uh, no, to George McClellan, the paramount consideration was preservation of the Union. He despised the radical Republican politicians and had no interest in abolition. But uh, there's no doubt that he believed the Union itself and old glory were worth fighting for. Shortly after hostilities began, McClellan made clear that he supported the war and would fight on the federal side. He declared after Fort Sumter, quote, I throw to one side now all questions as to the past, political parties, etc. The government is in danger, our flag insulted, and we must stand by it. That'll wrap up part one of our portrait of George McClellan. Join us soon for part two, when we'll see Little Mac rocket into the national spotlight, take command of all Union forces, while building the Army of the Potomac into a first-class 19th century army, before coming down with a case of the slows. Please rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find it. Or email us at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, or just want to say hi. Thanks as always for listening. And I hope you enjoyed the show. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.